give our band a little a moment to leave the stage here. Uh, my name is Zach. For those of you who don't know, although I suppose most of you do, I'm the associate pastor here, and um, I wish I had something funny or witty or snarky to say about Ben, but I just, I don't. If you've been here the past two weeks, he has grilled me. Um, so, and I guess he feels the uh, freedom to do that now that I'm full-time. I'm, I'm not sure uh, that if that's changed the dynamic and I need to be on the lookout. Or, uh, But I'm glad to have you here this morning. It's my pleasure to uh, preach and prepare and study in God's Word to preach to you this morning. It's no surprise, it's, behind, well, it's not behind me, but this morning I'm preaching on singing. Last week we were talking about preaching, and Ben preached on preaching. We're continuing in our series, Churchy Stuff, which again, if you weren't here last week, that might strike you as odd. Uh, it's just a way of us talking about things that we as a church tend not to talk about. Some of the things that we assume, that we take for granted, that we don't necessarily spend a lot of time thinking on, you know, why do we do the things that we do? So like I said, this morning I'll be preaching on singing. We live in a society that is increasingly at odds with the church. Not merely in beliefs made obvious by contemporary social issues dealing with all manners of sexuality, just to name one example. But as a church, we live at odds in practice. And this is no coincidence. Beliefs shape practice, and practices reinforce and shape beliefs. Last week, as I mentioned, Ben preached on preaching. And he mentioned that preaching as a practice, one of the things he mentioned, is that preaching is falling out of favor. You might hear someone say they don't want to be preached at, or offer up the criticism that someone sounded preachy. What it comes down to is we don't want to be spoken at or two, we want to be spoken with. Monologue is out, dialogue is in. And I'll leave you to consider how changing beliefs are reshaping the practice of preaching and how our changing practice of preaching might be reshaping some of our beliefs. Because again, this morning I'm preaching on preaching, or not on preaching, but on singing. Do you enjoy singing? One of my favorite authors, an English Catholic, by the name of G.K. Chesterton, once said that people do not sing because they are sad. He noticed that sailors and farmers used to sing as they went about their work, but a modern newspaper is never printed by people singing in chorus. There's a song to be sung for every activity on an old ship, but such is not the case for today's banker in a bank or any other job, really. This was an enormously intelligent man who saw the lack of singing as a symptom of a sick civilization. Chesterton believed that his was a spiritually suffocating society, sad and repressed. Now there's a good chance this morning that some of you here do not like singing. And if that is you, I am not assuming that you are sad and repressed. I'm not accusing you of being sad and repressed. In fact, I believe that one of the main reasons people sing is precisely because they are sad. I would guess that all but the youngest of us in here have sung a song in a time of great grief. Whether in a whisper or with a shout, 
we've given vent to our souls, our innermost beings, by singing. Therefore, if you don't like singing, I'm not accusing, accusing you or assuming that you are sad. Being sad is not the opposite of singing. Instead, I would guess that the reason you don't like to sing is that you aren't very good at it. You consider not singing a favor to anyone within earshot. It doesn't bring you or anybody else any joy, so you've come to a place where you no longer enjoy singing. This, this betrays what singing is. And so my focus this morning isn't just on those who don't like to sing. Because I, along with G.K. Chesterton, I believe that this practice of not singing is a useful symptom in diagnosing a spiritual sickness. A backwards belief that's working itself out in practice by those who love to sing just as much as those who don't. So we're going to open God's word this morning and turn our attention to Luke 19. Um, I want to encourage you to follow along in your Bible. I think there's just something to holding something in your hand. So whether that's a good old-fashioned book or a backlit glass screen, um, I, I encourage you to follow along. If you don't have a Bible, if you forgot your Bible this morning, there should be a Bible in one of the chairs um, in front of you, uh, below one of the chairs in front of you. Like I said, we're going to be in Luke 19, starting in verse 28. And as you turn there, uh, before we really get going, would you bow your heads and pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, um, thank you for your Son, your only begotten Son, who came and died, that we might be adopted and call you Father, that we can come to you in prayer and call you Father. Um, and yet you're our Heavenly Father, and you're in heaven ruling in power, and you uh, control everything and you're aware of everything that's going on so we come here before you this morning um, hoping to worship you uh, to honor you to glorify you as we turn to your word i pray that my preparation and my study and the words that come out of my mouth will be edifying that you will um, charge them with your holy spirit and that your holy spirit the holy spirit will move through us myself included um, to Sing. Um, thank you for your goodness and your kindness. Help us to focus this morning and remove distractions. It's in Christ's precious name I pray. Amen. So we're going to look at Luke 19, starting in verse 28. It says, And when he had said these things, and that's Jesus. So and when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, or on entering, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, <clears throat> they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. 
He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Here in the Gospel of Luke, we have what is commonly referred to as the triumphal entry. It's Palm Sunday. Jesus is traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem, a distance of about 20 miles. And as he approaches Jerusalem, he passes by the village of Bethpage, a little more than half a mile away. The, the, the village of Bethpage might even be considered a suburb of sorts of Jerusalem. And as they're passing, he commands two of his followers to go and find and bring back a young donkey. They do, and Christ rides the donkey into the city of Jerusalem. Now what you may know, what we know from experience or tradition or just plain old familiarity with Palm Sunday, but what may not be immediately obvious as we read the text is that Jesus is being celebrated as a king. That's what they're excited about. They, they're seeing Jesus coming as a king. I think so often, especially as we turn our attention to Palm Sunday, we're very, rightly so, focused on the cross, focused on what's coming, and that Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. But we forget what's happening here for these people and in this scene, that Jesus was maybe even a little wrongly, a little misunderstood, but he was being celebrated as a king. At the sight of their wonderful and mighty teacher and leader riding into the holy city of Jerusalem, Jesus' followers begin rejoicing and praising God loudly. Imagine that you had recently seen coverage on the news about a man or a woman going from town to town addressing and resolving issues like homelessness and joblessness and violence, and sexual assault, and and gun control, never mind performing miracles. And then one day you see that this individual has just landed in Washington, D.C. You would quickly connect the dots, or at least begin wishful thinking, that this man, this woman, will deliver us. And you're confident because you've seen it happen already. This is similar to what these men and women lived as Jesus Christ rode into town. They had seen his mighty works. They had seen lepers healed. The blind received sight. The lame walked. The people were fed. The dead lived. These Jewish men and women had seen clearly that Jesus was blessed by God. And they hoped, they they expected for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem and deliver them. To save them from their enemies. They praised him as a king. A king sent by God. This is why they threw their cloaks on the ground. And according to the book of Matthew. Why they had branches in their hands. Cloaks to keep the king from touching the dirt. And the branches as a sign of celebration and joy. Yet as all this is taking place. We are told of an all too familiar group of men who were not so pleased. Jesus' old nemeses, the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they tell Jesus to make his followers stop. And as I imagine this taking place, as I imagine it in my mind's eye, I, I can't help but laugh at the situation. I can't help but think that this scene just unfolds comically. Because here we have Jesus riding into town on what very well may very well have been a wobbly baby donkey. A, a baby donkey who had never carried a person before, had never had that experience. So 
It doesn't say this is the case, but it's not a stretch to imagine Jesus riding into town on a wobbly donkey with a ragtag group of followers singing his praises, and the Pharisees, for all their social influence and dignity, are helpless to do anything but follow along. And I imagine they must have been near to Jesus, pushing through the crowds, trying to get his ear, to say a word to him. And I imagine that word they tried to speak was interrupted over and over again with the cries of blessed is the king and glory in the highest. The futility of the Pharisees as they try to cut through the praises of the Lord paints a starkly ironic picture. And what is it that the Pharisees say? say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They do not address Jesus as king or as Lord, but merely as teacher. They do not recognize the king, kingship or lordship of Jesus in the way that his followers have. And they tell him to make his disciples stop. Stop celebrating. Stop praising. Stop calling you Lord. Stop saying you're king. What kind of teacher lets his disciples get away with such egregious behavior? And what is Christ's response? If these people were silent, the very stones would cry out. I have searched high and low over the past week to preach to you about singing this morning. And I believe that this one verse, at least for myself, has been the key to unlocking a holistic view of singing, as church singing, as singing, or for singing as Christians. If these people, if those people were silent, the very stones would cry out. But before I explain that a little further, I want to get into the scene, I guess, a little bit more, right? Because if you're anything like me, when you hear this verse, you imagine the rocks and pebbles scattered along the road, wriggling and and shaking and opening up cartoonish-looking mouths and, and singing, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Right? It's not a particularly loud sound. Maybe it would match the intensity of crickets chirping. But it would be astonishing, nonetheless, because of the unexpected source. But if we work hard to get into the context, right, and you put yourself in the scene, what do you see? You're standing amidst the crowd just outside the city of Jerusalem. You see smiling, joyful people. You see the cloaks along the road. You might see a bit of a cloud of dust being kicked up by the people. You may be close enough to see Jesus himself riding on the donkey and the Pharisees pushing in. You'd see the Mount of Olives behind Jesus. Palm trees that look a bit skinnier after lending their branches to the procession. But rising above it all, you'd see the walls of Jerusalem. Towering walls built from large stones, surrounding a city built largely out of stone. There's nothing wrong with imagining pebbles and loose rocks along the road singing praises to God. That's perfectly biblical and good. But as we read this and step into the scene, it's to realize that Jesus is saying something a bit more grand than the the pebbles will sing out to me. The stones that would shout are the very ones that have built up the city of Jerusalem. Jesus is telling the Pharisees that if his followers were silent, praise would reverberate through and from the very stones of Jerusalem. Much louder than the uproar from the people outside. It would have been more like a roar of thunder than the chirp of crickets. 
But either way, either way, the point stays the same. Regardless of the size or the intensity, the rocks would cry out. And this is far from the only place where creation praises God. We're going to look through various passages of Scripture, so hold tight. It's Psalm 19, 1 and 2 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Psalm 96, verse 11 through 13. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. Psalm 98, verse 1, and then jumping down to 7, 8, and 9. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes. Isaiah 55, 12. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Psalm 148, 1 through 4, and then 7 through 13. It says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord. And then the final verse of the final chapter of the book of Psalms, the Bible's book of songs, is this. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And then finally, Revelation, the last book in your Bible, Revelation 5.13 Uh, The Apostle John says, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. All of creation praises God. And this is not abnormal. This is not unusual. It is never presented as unnatural, but perfectly in line with the created order. And in case you have forgotten, or maybe never heard, or maybe it's in doubt, you are part of that created order. You too have been made by God to sing praises to God. This is natural. The abnormal, unusual, unnatural thing is for anyone to not sing praise to God. If stones can cry out and rivers and trees clap their hands... How much more should we as humans be offering our praises to God? But this is not a pull yourself up by your bootstraps message and a try harder message because we are not a pull yourself up by your bootstraps people. Our singing is not an attempt to bring God down into our sanctuary. It's not an attempt to climb a ladder into heaven so that we we might meet him there. Our singing flows from the fountain, from the flood of what God has already done for us. Our singing comes as our natural, created, human response 
to the mighty works we have seen and heard. This is the case at the triumphal entry. These men and women were not singing about ideas they liked. They were singing with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had witnessed. This is equally true for the passages I just read about nature praising God. Over and over and over again through the book of Psalms, commands and instructions to praise the Lord are surrounded by exclamations of what he has done. He delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Praise the Lord. He parted the Red Sea. Praise the Lord. He gave military victories. He protected them from their enemies. Praise the Lord. And here we are on the other side of the suffering of Christ, just a few weeks after Easter, in fact, week by week, meeting as a church, telling one another about God's mightiest, most marvelous deed in all of history. Sin has been defeated and sinners forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. It is incessantly clear from Scripture that singing always follows salvation. The stones will even open their mouths to sing in response to Christ, the Redeemer and King. Which all stems back to what singing is. Singing is one of the most profound modes of self-expression. The Bible itself doesn't offer this explanation. There is no 1 Corinthians 5 something to find this explanation of singing as this deep, deeply human experience. But we know it's true by looking out at God's creation. We look at men and women made in the image of God, Christian or not, deeply moved by singing. The writer behind uh, the, all of the lyrics in The Wizard of Oz, including the most famous song, probably, Over the Rainbow. He once described singing like this. He said, words make you think a thought, music makes you feel a feeling, and a song makes you feel a thought. Haven't you found this to be true in your own life? Singing has a way of connecting our hearts and minds, bringing together our affections and our thoughts. You might know the truth of Romans 8. You might know that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. But when you sing the last verse of In Christ Alone, no guilt in life, no fear in death, from life's first cry to final breath, no power of hell, no scheme of man. It gives me chills. My heart leaps. You feel the crescendo down deep in your bones that you know to be true in your mind. In Christ alone, you are safe. But if you're honest... And I'm honest, how much of our singing is bubbling up and out of our soul as a response to this fact? How much of our singing is in response to the glory of the gospel and the mighty works of God? How much of our singing is like the mountains and hills and rivers and trees and stones? Are you even singing? See, if you go to a Cubs game or a Cardinals game or a Reds game... Uh, Craig's not here, so no one's going to a Tigers game, but pretty much any professional baseball game, the seventh inning rolls around and you sing. You sing, take me out to the ball game. People all over the stadium sing. Black, white, rich, poor, blue collar, white collar, liberal, conservative, young, old, musically gifted, and people who are not so musically gifted. Why? See, we live in a world whose practice of singing 
is entertainment-oriented. Our society in general is entertainment-oriented. The point of life is enjoyment. And so we prop up our practices and the things we do to this end. We sing to be entertained. We sing to amuse. Or we sing to be entertained. Or we sing to be amused. Right? Our singing is meant to be consumed. And if your singing is not good enough for consumers, if your singing isn't good enough to be consumed, you simply don't sing. But this is not the biblical picture of singing. Singing is not a means of entertainment. It's not meant to draw a crowd. It's not even an invitation for God's presence. Singing is a deep-seated expression of the soul. The impulse to sing is embedded in creation. That's why people sing at a baseball game. Sure, you might have some who sing because they like the sound of their voice or some who sing because they've had too much to drink. But by and large, the vast majority of people sing because they're enjoying themselves. They've been drawn into the experience of the game. People sing freely because they realize they aren't the center of attention. And and the stadium, the layout, all of it makes it glaringly obvious. The focus is on the field. It's not on you in the stands. So it doesn't matter if you sound bad or good. The singing isn't done to be impressive or entertaining. It's done because it's our natural response to life. It's who we were made to be. Creation sings. People sing. And a soul that's been gripped by the gospel cannot help singing praise to God. So sing. Sing loudly. Sing loudly enough so that the people around you can hear. Let your voice testify to the wonderful things God has done on your behalf. Let your singing be a sign that Christ has renewed your mind and revived your heart. If you're not a good singer, sing. Let your off-key, out-of-pitch singing join in and testify gladly and loudly to the wonderful things God has done. If you don't particularly like a song, sing. So long as the song is, is true, it doesn't matter if it's fast or slow, if it's repetitive, if it's old or new. If it praises the Lord and tells of his mighty deeds, sing with all of your might. Sing as well as you can. And as we sing alongside one another, we'll be reminding one another of who God is. What God has done. We'll be fulfilling God's will for us, the church. Encouraging one another. Building each other up. I learned more from one Sunday morning of singing than I think I'll ever learn from all the preaching I hear for the rest of my life. My own preaching included. Um, I will never, ever forget. uh, I did not expect this to be emotional at all. Um, I will never, ever forget singing as a church just hours after hearing the news that a dearly beloved friend, father, and brother in Christ was killed in an accident on his way to work. He's a firefighter riding his motorcycle early in the morning on, on the way to his station and he's hit head on. As we were led in worship that morning, right, church continued. We still had a God to praise. We were told that his wife insisted on listening to the song, King of My Heart, from home. She was listening to it over and over, singing it out. And if you don't know that song, or if you're not super familiar with it, that song over and over and over says, you are good. And then goes on to say, you're never going to let me down. 
We sang that as a church. We sang, though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Though you take from me, I will bless your name. We sang forever. Forever God is faithful. Forever God is strong. His love endures forever. We were sad. We were heartbroken. We sang with broken hearts. But our songs sounded different because of our beliefs. Our songs sounded different because of what we had seen and heard. Our songs sounded different because of the mighty deeds of God. We knew that we had been saved. And so we sing because we've been saved. And we can't help but sing about it. No matter what life may bring, God is still good and worthy of endless praise. So the music on a Sunday morning isn't a concert to be experienced. It's not a performance to witness. Our great God is the experience. God calls us to gather and sing so that we might witness him as we hear one another singing singing of his deeds and what he's done. And that we might bear witness about him to anyone who might come in and join us on a Sunday morning. We've been made to sing, to sing along with all of creation. And our song, that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord, isn't beautiful primarily because of its sound. I can't imagine city walls sounding very good. It's beautiful because it's true. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just uh, ask that you... As you've promised to us in your word, that your word will not go out and come back void. Um, God, that I'm, we're all just simple people who are so desperate for you that it's not built on our own wisdom, whether it's our singing or our preaching or our serving and loving one another. God, that we are wholly dependent on you um, with every moment, every second of our lives. Um, I pray that we would be all encouraged in um, to sing, to sing loudly, to not feel this weight that we are somehow singing to earn your approval or singing to impress other people, God, but that we would be set free to sing, that you have set us free to sing. You've put a song in our hearts that we've been saved, we've been redeemed, and, and that we would put those other burdens aside and just praise your name, uh, whether we can sing in key or not. Thank you for this church and for these people. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen.